Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, TEND is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday, we release these special episodes that we're calling Classic Risk Singles. Each of these episodes features just one story from our earlier years. If you're new to Risk, you should know that the podcast can be very uncensored. This week, a story of my own. This one first appeared on the show in November of 2012, and it's called Man at Hawaii. The morning of my first day of high school, I sat in an auditorium with about 300 other freshman boys. There were going to be a lot of speeches from a lot of Jesuits. And first, an older priest with beige hair came striding out on stage. He had a kind of a JFK look about him, and he meant business. He said, Boys, we have a motto at St. Xavier High School. Men for others. What's most important to us is that you learn who you are and what you can do with who you are to help anyone who could use it. I felt like the Jesuits recharged my batteries that day because... They were Catholic, like I was Catholic, but they seemed to be talking about it in a much more vital way than I'd heard before. (laughs) As I came to think of it, they were speaking Jesuit. See, in grade school, I cherished my religion. But when the nuns taught us that religion was about having a relationship with God— 
<laughs> I couldn't really wrap my brain around that. To me back then, being Catholic was like that warm, glowing feeling of singing Handel's Messiah with the choir at Christmas. Or this almost weightless sensation I remember having kneeling before our parish replica of Michelangelo's Pieta at Easter. I mean, I love being Catholic because I love the art, but the art was always about the same thing. These transcendent incidents. You know, God would have his favorite children, and one day he would bestow on one of them an epiphany, or sometimes even just like a quick trip to the twilight zone, you know, like St. Margaret uh, having great debates with dragons, or um, St. Dennis pulling his head off of his neck for whatever purpose that served. But I mean, these people got to step out of banal reality and experience extraordinariness. And the nuns taught us to call those moments religious experiences. Of course, the guy who got the ultimate religious experience was Christ in the crucifixion and the resurrection. And I was especially obsessed with that story. I mean, this man endures pain and more pain and more pain until he's obliterated. Like when a rocket breaks the sound barrier and just vanishes into the stratosphere. And Sister Adriana said, the cross was a portal to another realm, a place so remarkable you can't even imagine it. And I remember being maybe nine, and watching the rain trickling down my bedroom window one Saturday afternoon, and just wondering, what were the thoughts that were going through his head when he was hanging up there? How did he feel when he expired? And then what was his experience? I mean, what was the change? Because of course he comes back. And when he does, he's something beyond human. Now, he's completely God. <laughs> That's a religious experience. And I wanted one, too. But... As of that first day of high school, I had an opposing desire. I had Father JFK in my head saying, Kevin, make the change away from fantasy toward doing things as a man for others. And I did not. I just started fantasizing I would. <laughs> I pictured myself spoon-feeding grandmas and teaching kids on crutches to walk again. And the worst part is, 
I'd even daydream of ways I could be a little showy about it. You know, just to make sure some Jesuit would notice me doing these things. And then I could daydream about people walking through the halls of St. X saying, that Kevin Allison, he's like a redhead St. Francis. Meanwhile, there were weekly opportunities to do community service through my school. But I just stuck to the fantasy. Then... At the end of junior year, Father JFK called me to his office. Now, I never actually met this man. I didn't even really know what his job was. But he impressed me again. He spoke with just as much purpose as he had that first day. He said, Kevin, I think you'd be a good candidate to go on our seven-week summer trip to some of the most poverty-stricken areas in Peru. I thought, wait, fuck. He's got the wrong Kevin. (laughs) I mean, I knew of at least one Kevin who was huge in the community service program. I mean, the only thing I was known for at school was doing the musicals. But he said, I'll tell you, Kevin. You can look through a copy of um, Time magazine, see pictures of starving kids in some far-off country. But what if you could open your own wallet and see a picture you took of some kid and say, well, now there's Miguel, and I've done good things for him. Well, I like that thought. (laughs) I mean, it fit in well with my redhead St. Francis daydreams. So, it was the summer of 1987. There were 16 kids and six adults. Now, for the first maybe 10 days, the trip was kind of a bust. The politicians and donors to the Jesuits in Lima didn't want us to see the dark side. So they had us staying in a rectory with gardens and falling water. This is what I actually wrote in my journal then. I'm frustrated. Now that we're here, I want to see what I can do. There's people in serious need very nearby. Now what can I do? So the Jesuits said, all right, kids, uh, plan B. (laughs) We're going to improvise. We ended up taking a 20-hour bus trip across the Peruvian desert to get to this small town called Arequipa. And about 14 hours into this ride, we stopped to get water. There was a shack Mostly just random pieces of wood nailed together. With nothing but the flat dirt ground surrounding it on all sides for miles and miles. But what stuck out was that a sign had been tacked on this structure that read Hawaii. It almost seemed like a joke. 
Like it really meant, yeah, I got your desert oasis right here. So everyone, kids, Jesuits, translators, jumped off the bus and rushed to the shack ahead of me. And that's when I saw that other than the guy selling water in the shack, there was one other human being out there. This nomad, this filthy skeleton of a man in rags. I guess he was in his 20s, but he may as well have been 60. He seemed shell-shocked to see us. He didn't seem aware that drool was stringing from his chin or that tears were tracing through the dirt on his cheeks or that two vultures were circling over and over about 50 feet above his head, just waiting. And he stared. He just stared with these milky eyes, like the eyes of a stricken dog, desperate, you know, dying in the road. I was frozen. When he looked at me, I looked away. And then my friend Steve, another kid on the trip, he came up behind me and said, that's God over there. And he's staring at us. (sighs) And part of me felt like rolling my eyes because I thought Steve was being showy. (laughs) And then another part of me was probably a little envious that he had come up with such a you know, good Jesuit kind of line. But part of me knew he was right. And Steve handed me a bottle of water. And I was about to say, what can we do? But the bus driver started shouting, Vominos, Vominos! And we were all jumping back on the bus, and then we were on our way again. The rest of the ride... I stared out the window, thinking, Kevin, what did you do? I mean, if that guy wasn't in need, who is? (laughs) You're a sad excuse for a um, redhead St. Francis. Well... The Jesuits did a bang-up job of finding us less comfortable accommodations in Arequipa. Our new retreat house was an abandoned prison. No electricity, very infrequent, and freezing cold water. And because of the way it felt, I came to call the little cot in my cell the saltine. But I was into this. I said, okay, Kevin... Maybe living like a poor person will kick you in the ass and get you interacting with them. But that first night, as I was trying to drift off, I looked toward the doorway of my tiny room, and I saw a shadow there in the shape of a 
small man. And then, those eyes. Those milky eyes. Staring. Well, of course I knew I was just imagining things, so... I turned and I looked out the window, but I could still feel those eyes behind me. I, I tried distracting myself, uh, singing a song, and then I closed my eyes. But inside my eyelids, like he was right on top of me, I saw those eyes. I jumped out of bed. I started pacing the hallways. I never doubted that it was all in my head. Obviously, it was all in my head. But it wouldn't get out of my head. So I went to the little room that they had designated as the chapel to maybe pray it away. Now, this room had been empty when we'd got there earlier that day, but now I found that there was one candle on one little table in the center of the room, and it was shining up on the goriest, screamingest crucifix I'd ever seen, and on the face of this butchered little figure were those eyes. If only this was a daydream. I remembered what this atheist kid said in religion class one day at school. He said, most of those saints, when they were having their religious experiences, they were really just people whose own brains turned against them. They were really just going insane. Well, maybe so. I mean, those religious experiences, there's not a lot of evidence on the ground. They happen in the mind or someplace you can't even pinpoint. So you walk away wondering, am I really making solid sense out of what actually is? Or am I just telling stories? <sighs> then I noticed someone had left a yellow legal pad and a pen in a corner of the chapel so I sat down on the concrete with that horrific crucifix glowing above. And I wrote at the top of the page, Man at Hawaii. And then a poem addressed to this man just gushed out of me. Man at Hawaii. What of me? gives you to be? Who in me gives you to dance in my nightmares? To breathe in my ear chilled depth? Are these my hands that strangle and push your repulse? I mean, the pen never left the page. No revisions. Just a torrent about how I would rather drive nails through his hands and dig thorns into his forehead and stab a spear into his side than to have to keep seeing his eyes in my brain. And it was a rush. It was like rapture. 
the writing, almost like I was floating on air. Of course, you know, it was filled with the melodrama that comes with the author being 17. And of course, some part of me hoped it meant, you know, now I've had experience. I can show great art to the world. But also, in my heart, it was a prayer. I was admitting to God, or at least to myself, that I just wasn't what I hoped to be. I am not what I hope to be. And I probably never will be. In the last few lines, I predicted even more failing to live up to my ideals. I pictured what it would be like to return to Ohio, and I wrote, And when when I I am am there, there, home and warm, I will not be seeing you, only comfortably killing you thousands of miles away. Well, the rest of the trip went as planned. We got the ball rolling on the building of a school for the kids on the outskirts of the city. And I did come home with pictures of those kids in my wallet. I don't know how much of a difference I made in any one of their lives. But I remember them. Anyway, I shared that poem with my friends on the trip. And a few months later, in my senior year, a copy of it made its way to the desk of Father JFK. So he called me into his office again. He said, Kevin, you know what next Thursday is. I did not. He said, we'll celebrate a mass for the feast of St. Francis Xavier in the gym. The student body, the faculty, all 1,300 of us. I want you to give a speech during the service. I want you to read that poem and tell the story. I felt electrified. I thought, okay, I'll show him I know how to speak Jesuit now. I'm going to Martin Luther King this thing. And I did. I mean, I gave it my everything. I still have these old cassette recordings of me rehearsing the speech. Sometimes I feel that wholeheartedly talking to God is something I have to get psyched up for. It's as if my faith is only a mood I'm sometimes in. An occasional inspiration. I think I may never stop seeing those eyes. Everything I was wrestling with in Peru seemed to be in those eyes. If, perhaps, while I read this poem, you found somewhere in your imagination the faintest image of those eyes, I'd like to remind you, that's God, and he's staring at you. As I stand here today and look up at these 1,300 or so pairs of eyes, I can say that also is God. And he's still staring at me. You could certainly say my performance was showy. 
I mean, sometimes it was downright Shakespearean. Just like the poem, it had all the melodrama that comes from the author being 17, but my heart was in it. And from those 1,300 people came a standing ovation in the middle of a mass. And the rest of the day, people I'd never spoken to before, jocks, goth guys, people I was scared of, they kept stopping me to say, hey man, that was a hell of a speech. Well, that night at home, I was doing the dishes in the kitchen and I was still kind of hearing the applause in my head. And at one point I turned and I looked out the window of the kitchen door and there he was with those eyes. Of course, it was all just in my head again, you know, my brain turning against me, but this time I felt like I could hear what he wanted to say. He was saying, you think you've done something? Telling stories about how, for me, you did nothing? And he was there that night when I was trying to get to sleep again. And I started pushing him out of my mind all over again. But a couple months later, I ran into Father JFK in the hallways at school. He said, congratulations, Kevin. And I thought, oh, what praise am I going to get now that I'm not sure I completely deserve? But he said, this year, we had five times as many applicants for the Peru retreat and seven times as many applicants for the Appalachian retreat. And at Jesuit schools in Chicago, Indianapolis, and New York, where we sent copies of your speech, they saw increases in applicants for mission retreats, too. And the one thing damn near every boy said in his application was that he knew he had to do something because of your speech. It was too much for me to process. But then he said, see, this is what we mean. When you told that story, you were a man for others. And I thought, okay then, that I can do. is all for this week's classic risk singles episode now don't miss out on our regular full-length episodes there's a brand new one every tuesday and everything you might want to know about us is at risk-show.com